Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence from the Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Name a female tennis player. Did you choose one of the Williams sisters? Emma Raducanu? Now name a female rugby player. That's a little harder. Women's sports have long been less popular and lucrative than men's. Fortunately, that appears to be changing quickly. And our obituaries editor remembers Ko Jimmy, a writer and activist who endured long stretches of time in prison and spent decades fighting for democracy in his native Myanmar. But first... When Joe Biden took office, one of his big policy goals was to take action on climate change. His proposals inevitably faced opposition, including from one senator in his own party. If the United States of America gets out of fossil fuels, I'll guarantee you there won't be another country step to the plate to do the research and development it takes to combat climate change. Joe Manchin represents West Virginia, long renowned for its coal production. He has resisted the green measures proposed by the president's $3.5 trillion Build Back Better package because he fears they would contribute to inflation. And because Democrats have the narrowest possible majority in the Senate, without Senator Manchin's support, President Biden's climate legislation has been stalled. But in a reversal on Wednesday night that shocked Washington, Senator Manchin announced he would back a new climate tax package worth a more modest but still significant $740 billion over the next 10 years. President Biden yesterday urged Congress to approve the bill. Pass it. Pass it for the American people. Pass it for America. But Mitch McConnell, the Senate's top Republican, blasted the measures, saying they were... A reckless taxing and spending spree that will delight the far left and hammer working families even harder. This is an enormous U-turn for the party's prospects. Idris Kaloon is our Washington bureau chief. Last week, Democrats on Capitol Hill were despondent about the fact that they weren't going to be able to get any climate change legislation through this cycle, perhaps even for years to come. The news of a deal that's been brokered between Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, and Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, has really reinvigorated the party, and they now think that uh, serious climate change action is within reach. So let's start with climate. What sorts of incentives do you expect to see in the bill? The bill actually had quite a lot of spending that it plans to devote to climate change and energy production. That's a nod to Senator Manchin's interests, given that he's from West Virginia, which is a coal-producing state. So it would spend $370 billion over 10 years, A lot of that would go to tax credits for things like solar panels, wind turbines. It would help people pay for electric vehicles and more efficient heat pumps. 
And it would also provide incentives for newer technologies such as carbon capture or advanced nuclear reactors. Democrats were very proud to tout the fact that they think that this legislation on its own will reduce America's carbon emissions by 40% relative to 2005 levels by the year 2030. President Joe Biden had set out a goal of 50%, so it won't get all the way there. But uh, as of last week, Democrats have been bracing for them to basically do zero. And beyond climate and energy, what else is in the deal and what type of agreements had to be made to get Senator Manchin on board? Senator Manchin seemed to have walked away from negotiations two weeks ago because he was concerned about inflation. That's been one of his primary worries throughout this entire saga that I've been following for almost 18 months now. So what we see is that uh, there are tax increases, a 15% minimum tax on particularly profitable corporations. And a lot of that money will be spent on deficit reduction. National debt is another issue that Manchin is particularly worried about. Then the next significant chunk goes on the climate change spending that we've been talking about. And a final chunk of about $64 billion would be spent on health insurance to extend the premium subsidies that have been created as part of Obamacare. I think one of the more important things is allowing the federal government to negotiate prescription drug prices for particularly high-cost drugs. That's something that the federal government has not been able to do since 2003, and the costs are quite huge. It's estimated that this provision would, on its own, bring in $288 billion over the next 10 years. And there's also a fossil fuel aspect to it as well, right? Can you talk a bit about that? And is that what you think got Senator Manchin on board? He is definitely very concerned about not phasing out fossil fuels too quickly, and that makes sense given his position as senator from West Virginia. So part of the bill would ease permitting for oil and gas exploration on federal land. Part of the deal that seems to be struck is that Democrats will also pitch separate legislation, which would ease permitting rules. The reason they can't put it as part of this legislation is for complicated reasons, but essentially this bill needs to be primarily budgetary um, in order for Democrats to pass it. But definitely Manchin has been an outspoken critic of ideas like the Green New Deal, and this sort of elitist attitude that he thinks Democrats have towards people who work in the fossil fuel industry. And without those sorts of things, they wouldn't have gotten him on board. I will say, though, that the current political dynamic means that this is actually advantageous for the White House because they've had to reverse their tune and encourage more natural gas development and production because of high petroleum prices. So for them, it's actually a win-win. You can blame Senator Manchin for pushing through these fossil fuel things, but that's actually in their political advantage to decrease gas prices in the short term and move towards a greener economy in the medium run. So do you think between those those fossil fuel-friendly incentives and the climate incentives that it will have enough support to pass the Senate? So this is where it gets um, interesting, right? This bill has had a lot of twists and turns. This deal was negotiated, it seems, in secret, and there can be consequences for that secrecy. So Senator Kirsten Sinema, who's the other Democrat that uh, might defect from this sort of legislation, doesn't seem to have been consulted at all in the production of this deal. She's been previously averse to increasing taxes and has said that that's a red line for her. So if she defects, you know, the legislation doesn't go through. That's another thing to, to keep in mind. And, and also, as I said before, pharma stands to lose $300 billion in revenue the solar industry, clean energy industries all stand to gain. There's going to be a frenzy of lobbying about this bill. And um, all you need is one senator to change their mind or demand changes at the last minute. And suddenly you have a very, very different bill. 
Chuck Schumer wanted to schedule a, a vote on this bill for next week, which is optimistic. I think he wants to capitalize on his momentum. But, uh, you know, I, I would expect that there will be a few more twists and turns in this story as well. And what do Republicans think of this measure? So far, their reception has not been positive. This would hand the most significant legislative win to Joe Biden of his administration. And they're not going to participate in it, I don't think. For one, the climate subsidies are not something that they would be minded to necessarily do. The Affordable Care Act is still not a popular term among Republicans. And what does this mean more broadly, do you think, for Joe Biden's agenda? As you said, it hands from a big legislative win heading toward the midterms. Yeah, I think it's a huge accomplishment if it actually makes its way through. It will be motivational to the progressives who have so far felt like they've been stymied and put to the side. And also a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about is fairly kitchen table issues. And that is the main vulnerability that Democrats have. If they can point to legislation that says, look, we're trying to reduce inflation, we're trying to reduce your healthcare costs, we're trying to reduce your prescription drugs costs, which will actually be, I think, probably the most popular provisions. Um, you know, if, if those things are, are things that they can campaign on, I think that they'll have a, a, a better shot at the midterm, certainly. All right, Idris, thanks so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. English football fans are used to disappointment. The men's national team hasn't won a major tournament since 1966. But now fans have hope in the historically overlooked women's team. This year, the Women's European Championship is breaking viewing records. England will play Germany in the final this Sunday at a sold-out Wembley Stadium. But this success is not unique to football. Women's professional sports as a whole are experiencing unprecedented growth. The 2022 is a bit of a bumpy year, I think, for women's sport. We've had a lot of big events. The women's Euros are going on right now. We've had a, a Cricket World Cup. We've seen the first ever Tour de France Femme. Tim Cross is our technology editor. And the Women's Rugby World Cup, plus sort of several others. And it's not just big events. We're also seeing record audience figures and viewership for most of those events. So why are women's sports doing so well now? Why this year? I think the sort of immediate answer to that is that it's another side effect of COVID. So one of the things that COVID did, of course, with sports in general, is you had lots of big events postponed. COVID has kind of packed the calendar. But I also think there's a kind of longer term trend here. The way it was explained to me is that men's sports for many years has benefited from what you might call kind of a flywheel effect. So high viewing numbers means more money comes into the sport. If more money comes into the sport, more people want to play. The standard of play goes up, the spectacle gets more dramatic, that brings in more viewers, so more people want to play, and kind of round and round it goes, and the whole thing grows. And men's professional sport has grown hugely in the last 30 to 40 years. I think in that same period of time, 
Women's sport has almost had the opposite problem, where the issue has been broadcasters will say, well, we'd show this stuff on TV, but we're not really sure anyone would watch. And then the audience would say, well, we'd like to watch, but we can't because you don't show it on TV. And there's always been you know, an assumption that because it won't succeed, it hasn't succeeded. But now you're just starting to see the sort of flywheels that have powered men's professional sport for many, many decades. There's sort of a sense that some of these wheels are starting to spin as well when it comes to women's professional sport. Now, Tim, you mentioned broadcasting. What about sponsorship? How has that been affected? Sponsorship dollars follow the eyeballs, as it were. So we've seen, for instance, the opening match of the Women's Euros. That packed out Old Trafford, which is the second biggest commercial stadium in the UK, you know, the home of Manchester United. The final is going to be at Wembley. They've sold 90,000 tickets. And UEFA, European sports governing body, they're aiming for kind of 250 million views up from like 173 million before. So yeah, once the viewing numbers start to look good, then you start to get sponsors being interested. And we've seen, for instance, Barclays in the UK, which is a big bank. They recently signed a deal to sponsor the highest level of women's pro football in Britain for 30 million pounds. And you're starting to see as well, you're starting to see rights holders realize that there's value here. So Up until fairly recently, what tended to happen is you would negotiate sponsorship deals for, say, rugby or football. That would buy you sponsorship rights for the men's game, and you'd kind of get that chucked in for free as an afterthought. But now you've seen bodies like FIFA and UEFA and World Rugby deciding to actually split those off. And that kind of focuses everyone's minds and makes people think, well, okay, how much are these things worth and how much do we want to pay? So we are starting to see sponsorship money coming in. And Tim, what about the fan base? Is it the same people watching women's sports as watch men's sports, or does the fan base look somewhat different? So there's definitely an overlap, and I think it depends on which sport you look at. And because women's sport is still relatively small, it's not necessarily always easy to get robust figures. With all those caveats in mind, there are some interesting figures from the Women's Sport Trust in Britain, which has been tracking this stuff for for about a decade. And interestingly, there's, there's usually a, a chunk of people, maybe sort of 20 to 30% of those watching, who don't really watch existing men's professional sport and have kind of been brought into it by watching women's. And if you're a sponsor or an advertiser, that's potentially quite interesting because the men's sport landscape, it's very expensive, it's very saturated, you have to spend a lot of money to get visibility. Whereas here, the sponsorship rates are, are lower and you're getting a new audience who weren't looking at sport before. So just as a purely commercial proposition, that's potentially quite attractive. So over time, do you see women's sports going the way of of something like tennis, where men and women have equal star power and equal earning capacity? Well, so I think this is the really big question. And tennis is fascinating because tennis is is a sort of massive exception to the general rule that women's sport lags behind men. So prize money at the Grand Slams has been equal for over 15 years at this point. And interestingly, if you look at the viewing figures for the finals, you see that the women's game is is pretty competitive with the men's. In the most recent US Open, for instance, the women's final attracted more viewers than the men's did. And if you ask a bunch of people, well, what is it that makes tennis so special? They kind of break the explanations down into sort of two buckets. One is sort of structural. And people say, well, it's something about tennis in particular that makes the women's game kind of easy to sell. It's an individual sport, so it's very sponsor-friendly. You just have to sponsor one athlete rather than a whole team. Some people will say... It's kind of easier to watch because the women play best of three sets instead of best of five. So you tend not to get those sort of four or five hour marathon matches. The other bucket of explanations is that the kind of flywheels we talked about here have just had longer to spin up in tennis. So you had a very determined campaign in the 60s and 70s to get women onto the tour. You had the establishment of the WTA in 1973 and sort of lobbying from players like Billie Jean King and so on. And that's almost like a sort of accident of history explanation, which says, well, if Billie Jean King had been a hockey player or a cricket player instead, perhaps we'd be talking about, well, why is women's cricket so successful? So if you take the view that 
tennis is doing well because the flywheels have had longer to spin up, then yeah, perhaps it does mean that football, cricket, any other sport will get there eventually. It's just the flywheels haven't been spinning as long. All right, Tim, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, John. the 23rd, the military regime in Myanmar executed four pro-democracy activists. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. Perhaps the chief among them was Kyo Min Yu, better known as Ko Jimmy, Brother Jimmy. He was famous in Myanmar and beyond it, not only for the length of time he'd spent in prison, about half of his life, but also because he had had the most extraordinary love affair which had started in prison. And this began when he was giving speeches at the big demonstrations in 1988 against the military regime. He was then a young student, he was 19 in his third year of studying physics. And as he looked out over the crowd, he saw a young woman. She was in fact a schoolgirl, still in her green and white uniform. And she was struggling with an army officer and trying to kick him in the head. He was astounded by this sight and it became an indelible image. He found he couldn't forget her face. He was arrested shortly after that demonstration and had been in insane prison for seven years when he heard that a new female inmate had arrived. She had been arrested for organizing demonstrations. Then he heard that she was ill and he could hear her crying at night. So he managed through the intervention of a guard to send her a little note simply asking, are you all right? They quickly got married and decided that they would pursue their campaign for democracy together. It was quite a hard life that they'd embraced. Ko Jimmy had wanted to be a good husband and good father, but he was keen on being a political prisoner of conscience first. And this was where all his effort went. So they had to accept when they started that they were going to spend quite a bit of time apart from each other and probably a lot of it in prison. And when his wife, who was called Nila Tain, became pregnant, he actually apologized to the baby and said, we are going to be quite a long time away from you. In fact, the baby was usually left with the grandparents while they went off and campaigned as they knew they had to. The next big campaign they were involved in was the so-called Saffron Revolution. And that was when the country rose up against an ending of fuel subsidies. He was arrested again and she had to go into hiding. She too was arrested and so once again they were both in prison, but this time in different prisons. So they continued to correspond. He said, in fact, they always felt they were together, even when they were far apart. He'd become an advisor to Aung San Suu Kyi, the pro-democracy leader. 
He was not exactly a member of her National League for Democracy, but he was certainly giving her advice as much as he could. And he felt at the time rather uneasy that reforms were very slow and he went especially to a demonstration by workers against a Chinese-owned copper mine and realized that the violence with which these workers were put down, even when they were working for Aung San Suu Kyi, was just like the old days. In fact, he saw that this so-called democratic regime, which was becoming more and more successful in elections, was not as democratic as all that. But the National League for Democracy was doing better and better to the extent that eventually in 2021, the army moved in again and removed Aung San Suu Kyi as de facto leader and took over the country again. The regime, in fact, accused him of planning bombing attacks and also of stashing weapons in various places in the capital. And in fact, he was also accused of high treason, so he was in a good deal of trouble at this point. He was given the death sentence in January. He appealed against it in June, but the appeal was turned down. His own attitude to this was very interesting. When he'd first gone to jail, when he was 19, he'd been full of rage and fury, and he'd vented his fury on the guards. But he discovered after a while, when he'd shared a cell with a Buddhist monk and had learned meditation from him, that the best way would be to review his emotions, to try to control his anger and to look on the guards not as evil, but as poor, illiterate people who were simply following orders. So he began to look at them differently and to respond to them differently. And he found that conditions improved just because his attitude had become more forbearing and calmer. His attitude to what would happen in Myanmar was also inflected with Buddhism. He knew that he hadn't done very much in his life to change things, but he was convinced that he had many lives and that he would, in other lives, possibly manage to bring about what he wanted. And in any case, the ultimate end of all those lives would be nirvana, which would be perfect freedom. And he always kept that in his mind as he was fighting for freedom in Myanmar. Anne Rowe on Code Jimmy, who was executed at the age of 54. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent. And our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Rory Galloway, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and Kevin Kaners. And on her last day with us, assistant producer Abathoyos Ndairo. We'll all... 
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. See you back here on Monday. 